0: Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 8 on February 12, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Dr. Howard Werman and Kathy Jaynes, the medical director and director of research for the new Center for Medical Transport Research. I also check in with Rex Alexander, the president-elect of the National EMS Pilots Association, about the association's newly released Heliport Safety Sign Program. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 7 and cover some recent Air Medical transport news. I did hear from a listener about the iTunes store and how Air Medical Today was being listed It turns out that iTunes did a refresh on the layout of their site, and Air Medical Today and one of my other podcasts that I do were only playing 30 seconds of the podcasts in a new preview button that iTunes had added. If you subscribe or download any of the podcasts, however, they will play in their entirety. It was also noted that not all the podcast episodes were being listed, but that problem seems to have self-corrected. I have reported this to iTunes, but my guess is it is all in the rollout of this new design and that hopefully the issue will also correct itself. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. And, as I've mentioned several times now, I continue to try and locate all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left-hand column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please either leave a message on the page or send your page's link uh, to my email address. I would like to be the directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and easily fan fellow Air Medical Transport Care Providers. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the aeromedical world. The big news that I reported at the end of last week's episode was the crash of the Southwest Medevac helicopter based in Lanz Cruces, New Mexico, on Friday night, February 5th, at Fort Bliss in Texas. According to the Fort Bliss officials, the crash happened shortly before 7.30 p.m. southeast of the McGregor Range base camp. Pilot William Montgomery and paramedics John Suter from Lance Crucis and Anthony Archuleta of El Paso were the only ones on board when their helicopter went down. Military officials said the chopper was preparing to land when it suddenly burst into flames. According to investigators, the night sky was clear when the simulation exercise was taking place and that the pilot was in contact with the military's communication center. Last Saturday, investigators with both the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Transportation Safety Board were on the scene to look through the wreckage so as to try to piece together what may have happened. Southwest Medevac gave details of the incident in a statement last Friday and said that the crew were supporting their Fort Bliss commitment with a flight to the McGregor Range. During the last portion of the flight, the aircraft impacted the landing zone, which resulted in fatal injuries to the flight crew. The flight was part of a two-day training exercise involving a simulated medical evacuation. Weather conditions were said to be clear, and the helicopter is understood to have been equipped with night vision goggles, satellite navigation, and a radar altimeter. The pilot, William Montgomery, flew for the U.S. Army in the Vietnam War and had been working for Southwest Medevac for less than two months. He was solely charged with flying paramedics on training exercise. Southwest Medevac is a CAIMS-accredited subsidiary of OmniFlight Helicopters Incorporated and provides air medical services in West Texas and Southern New Mexico with both rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The service was founded in Lanz Cruzes, New Mexico in 1994 and now operates from 11 bases. All the service's aircraft are operated by OmniFlight. There was a story published by WFAA-TV on Tuesday talking about the number of accidents that OmniFlight had experienced in a six-month period that was initially incorrect and later corrected on Wednesday with the number of actual crashes at Five in that six-month period. The article said that the operator's name had appeared multiple times in recent NTSB reports, which included reference to a July 2, 2009 incident of one of their medical helicopters striking a steel pole while landing on a hospital helipad in South Carolina. No one was hurt, but the aircraft suffered substantial damage, according to the NTSB. A September 22, 2009 incident where a pilot ran out of gas and had to make an emergency landing in Arizona. The NTSB described the aircraft's impact as having landed hard. The pilot was not hurt, but the helicopter suffered substantial damage. On September 25, 2009, Carolina Air Care crashed in Georgetown, South Carolina, killing all three crew members. And then finally, on November 4, 2009, a flight instructor and a pilot lost control and landed hard in Globe, Arizona. Both occupants suffered serious injuries and the helicopter sustained substantial damage, according to the NTSB report. Four of those five incident accidents uh, occurred at night. The FAA said it is not investigating OmniFlight's operations, and the operator itself said that they were in constant state of evaluation and scrutiny of their aircraft, including procedures and training, and that if audits identify any issue that can enhance safety and compliance, they would immediately implement a corrective action plan. OmniFlight further stated that in these cases, no commonality of location, weather conditions, training procedures, or personnel existed. In Haiti earthquake news, uh, pilots have increasingly been reluctant to ferry injured Haitian children out of the country for treatment without proper documentation in the wake of the arrest of 10 Americans on charges of abducting children. The 10 have been charged with child abduction and criminal conspiracy in the case that has angered many Haitians. Evacuations aboard U.S. military planes were unaffected. I continue to track news on members of our air medical community who are volunteering their time in Haiti, so please email me and I will include their story in a future episode. Well, on health care reform, not much has been going on in the last two weeks. Uh, President Obama gave some conflicting signals this week about whether health care reform can be passed. This has frustrated Democratic lawmakers who want guidance from the White House as they try to salvage the effort to extend coverage to millions of unassured Americans and hold down medical costs. The president said that the next step, which was outlined in his State of the Union message, is to call on Republicans to present their ideas. This past Sunday, he underscored a push for bipartisan solution to health reform, setting a February 25th date for a policy summit with Democrats and Republicans alike in an effort to break this legislative impasse. Obama said that he was not going to walk away from health insurance reform and this challenge, but the loss of the 60th party vote means that the Democrats will have to work with the Republicans, who, under the rules of the Senate, can block legislation at will. Republicans have been united in their opposition to health care reform legislation and have complained about being left out of the lawmaking process. In a written statement, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, said that Obama needs to shelf the current bill. He said that the American people want lower costs, not Medicare cuts and tax increases, and that setting the current proposals aside would be a sign that the administration and Democrats in Congress are listening to the country and are truly interested in a bipartisan approach. On Thursday, Senate leaders officially welcomed Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown, the Republican who won the Commonwealth seat that had long been held by the late Edward Kennedy. Brown has been a champion of expanded health insurance in the past and voted for the Massachusetts plan that extended coverage to virtually everyone in the Bay State. But he also made it clear that the current legislation is unworkable and that we need to basically go back to the drawing board and start again. In a letter sent to White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel, Minority Leader John Bonner, Republican from Ohio, and Republican Whip Eric Cantor of Virginia questioned the president's sincerity in his call of bipartisanship. If the starting point of this meeting is the job-killing bills that American people have already soundly rejected, Republicans would rightly be reluctant to participate, the letter states. While short of setting lines in the sand, House Republicans strongly urged their White House to eliminate the possibility that a bill would pass using legislative procedure known as reconciliation, which would effectively allow a bill to pass on a simple majority vote in the Senate. Now on to other news. Kerr County, Texas commissioners are alerting constituents that two air ambulance firms offer member discounts in the Hill Country, and that helicopter service for non-members can be pricey. Complicating the emergency responder calculus is the fact that there's no guarantee which provider will be summoned in any given crisis. Eric Maloney, Kerrville EMS coordinator, told commissioners that patients don't always get their pick on which firm flies them because either may be unavailable when crisis hits. He said we'll do our best we can to honor memberships, but the paramedic's primary concern is getting patients care, not the bill. The issue landed before the commissioners due to other constituent gripes and because last fall they voted to allow county workers to take payroll deductions to become members of Air Life, making them eligible for deep discounts. Airlife President Robert Hilliard said his firm, a nonprofit that's been flying here since 1991, has reciprocal agreements with other nonprofits, uh, helicopter programs. However, they are legally barred from entering such contracts with for-profit programs like AirVac. Commissioners plan to brief county workers on the AraVAC membership offer, which is more expensive than Airlife's for similar coverage, and to allow them to enroll through a payroll deduction. Geisinger Lifelight added a new Eurocopter EC one forty five into its fleet of three EMS helicopters. The new helicopter will be based at the Williamsport Regional Airport. The new helicopter is equipped with enhanced technology features, including GPS tracking capabilities, single-pilot IFR with redundant, independent, dual autopilot systems, collision and terrain avoidance systems, increased liftoff weight allowances, increased maximum. Uh, flight range up to 350 miles, and active weather radar mounted in the nose of the aircraft. Night vision goggle certification is coming later this year. The aircraft went into service on January 22nd after completing final inspection. The EC-145 is the third of its kind in the life flight fleet. The program also flies EC-145 helicopters out of its bases in Danville and Avoca, Pennsylvania. Other life flight bases are located in State College and Minersville. The EC-145 has incorporated all the NTSB's aircraft recommendations that were published in September 2009. The Maryland State Police said that a helicopter was damaged when it hit a snowbank as it prepared to leave a helipad at Prince George's Hospital Center in Landover, Maryland Thursday evening. No crew members were injured, and the helicopter was not airborne when it hit the snowbank Thursday night. The crew had just brought two patients involved in a traffic crash in Anne Arundel County to the hospital. Police said that as the pilot applied power to begin liftoff, the tail lowered several inches and hit the snowbank along the perimeter of the ground-based helipad. The crew immediately shut down the engines. The extent of the damage will not be known until further examination by the Maryland State Police Aviation Command. The aircraft will be taken by truck uh, to the State Police Aviation Headquarters at Martin State Airport in Middle River, Maryland. Uh, the helicopter crew included Pilot Corporal Timothy Siebold and Flight Paramedic Sergeant Nathan Wheelock. The helicopter is based at Andrews Air Force Base. From Johannesburg, South Africa, eight officials in the Eastern Cape Health Department were suspended following allegations that include using an air ambulance to attend a soccer match. The suspended officials include a a provincial operations manager, three heads of ambulance centers, a secretary, two emergency flight managers, and a deputy manager at the ambulance center. Another 12 are the subject of an internal forensic investigation that is part of a wider probe into fraud, corruption, and maladministration in the department. They face charges of fraud, corruption, dishonesty, and the abuse of an aircraft that falls within the departmental air ambulance contract. There are also allegations of producing fraudulent invoices. The department has referred the cases to law enforcement agencies for prosecution. It was announced this week by Jonathan Godfrey, chairperson of the Ames Vision Zero initiative, that Vision Zero is forming a team for the National EMS Memorial Bike Ride scheduled for May 15th through 22nd later this year. He's looking for ways to bring 75 riders onto the team and is hoping that individual programs will sponsor the riders. The memorial ride is not a race, but rather a leisurely paced ride. Participants should do some conditioning before they ride, but you do not have to be an Olympian to participate, said Godfrey. Nearly all ages are represented, and riders do not have to ride the entire week if you are not able to. Vision Zero hopes this will be an opportunity to broadcast the core values of safe and rapid transport and a unified approach within the 911 response community. Jonathan said that he is going to be doing the ride because he needs to do it. The EMS Memorial has too many of his friends' names on it, and he believes that this is a way to acknowledge, sacrifice, and show the world why medical transport is dedicated to serving the public's safety, and that we are proactive and not just reactive, and that we remember our losses. There will be more information on both the Vision Zero webpage and Facebook page, as well as the National EMS Memorial Bike Ride website. All the links are in the show notes. The ride travels from Maine to West Virginia. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. This week, I changed the way the Twitter feed is being incorporated into the Facebook page through a new RSS tool that my partner from the Kansas Cyclist podcast, Randy Reza, told me about. So now both feeds are similar, as in the past I put out more information on the Twitter feed than Facebook. If things work out well with this new RSS tool, I will probably delete the other feed on the RSS slash blog tab on the Facebook page, but right now, both of them are there. My guest today in the first response section of the podcast is Mr. Rex Alexander, who is the Regional Operations Manager for the Central United States for OmniFlight Helicopters. Rex is also the president-elect of the National EMS Pilots Association, or NEMSPA, who will be talking about the association's newly released Helicopter Safety Sign Program. Rex has spent 34 years in aviation, with 24 of those years in helicopters and 16 years in the air medical industry. He is an Army veteran of 11 years. Rex is also the past president of the Indiana Ames Chapter, and is a member of the Helicopter Association International Heliport Committee. He also has a consulting firm called R.J. Alexander Consulting, LLC, where he provides consulting for heliport design and safety. Rex, thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Ed.
0: Well, well, tell us about the genesis uh, for this heliport safety sign campaign. How did it all get started?
1: Well, over the uh, last few years, we've been working on a um, presentation online for hospitals and air medical providers, specifically on safety and design and of uh, heliports. And one of the things that we had in there was some of the signage that you should have. But we started getting calls this summer about where people could purchase heliport signs. And there wasn't really any on the market, uh, so NEMSPA decided to fill the need and create one. Uh, mm-hmm kind of where the whole thing started
0: so what's it uh, who was calling you the hospitals
1: uh the hospitals uh have had um, uh, several different uh, agencies across the country uh, from virginia all the way to oregon ask uh where they could purchase uh heliport signs for uh their heliports mm-hmm.
0: so did you take this initiative or were there others at NEVSPA that were behind it
1: Uh, Well, everybody at NMSP was behind it, but uh, I pretty much started the ball rolling and started doing the investigation, and we solicited uh, ideas and information from the FAA, the DOT, several insurance underwriters, uh, operators, and pilots alike, and uh, boiled down a lot of good information to come up with uh, something
0: that was going to work. I see. Did you come up, Rex, with, I know from looking at the website and I'll have a link to this in the podcast on uh, what the sign actually says and how you can order it. but um, on the language itself, how did you vet that then? you went through you said through you know, underwriters and other folks, how did you come up with the you know stay, stay back 200 feet? And
1: well, the big thing uh, with the, the language, um, after uh, diving into it, we found out that with the new changes in the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration and another organization called the American National Standards Institute, referred to as ANSI, uh, those are the ones that classify safety signs and according to use. The thing is that those standards had changed and the newest revision was in 2002. So we went back and looked at all the ocean ANSI recommendations as to what signs should say, how they should be uh, designed and what information should be uh, pertained to on those signs and that's where our starting base was so when you look at the uh, the requirements set forth by the new 2002 ANSI uh,
0: I think wow. it's,
1: uh, yeah. the C535 standards this is one of the only signs out there that even meets those standards the new standards
0: yeah well yeah, I hadn't even thought of that I was thinking more on how you came up with the you know language on what's on the sign, let alone the uh, the design of the sign, so that's interesting.
1: Yeah, it, uh, I would have never thought when I started <laughs> the project that it would have taken this long to create a sign, but <laughs> yeah. we did come up with the right sign.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, tell us about uh, what's on the sign. I know you can customize it. Uh.
1: Well, the uh, sign is designed that if someone wanted to order it, and uh, our recommendation is that a sign be placed anywhere the public is near an area that will be considered a landing area or a heliport uh, for a helicopter. Uh, the sign is designed to communicate to the public that there are hidden dangers in and around that landing area. Uh, we have the basic sign that you can order with what's uh, shown on the uh, Internet. Also, if uh, an organization, either the uh, air medical organization or a hospital wants their logo and placed on that for a small additional fee we can have the uh, logo placed on all the signs that they order.
0: I see. Yeah, in fact when I was originally looking at this I'm thinking from a hospital perspective but a, an air medical program could actually order a bunch of these and put their logo on and then provide them to the hospitals.
1: Right, that was uh, if um, an air medical uh, organization or also a uh, say a state Medical Association could yes, yeah. and uh, donate them to hospitals. Uh, also,
0: I see. And what is the so what is the cost? And is there uh, if you wanted to order a lot of them, would there be some type of discount?
1: Well, the standard cost is forty nine ninety five, and that includes shipping and handling. But that's without any logo. Uh-huh. Uh, an additional logo uh, setup fee is fifteen dollars, one time fee, and an additional seven dollars and fifty cents. For the logo per sign as far as how many you can order uh, there is a, uh, a price discount if you order uh, larger quantities <clears throat> um, as far as how many we can actually uh, handle the company that we're using utilizing is a company out of um, archibald ohio called three cord uh, you can order one sign you can order 100 signs or even more than that depending on what your needs are uh, the price break fifty one to one hundred and fifty signs, drops the price down to forty eight ninety five each. If you order more than one hundred and fifty, we drop the price down to forty seven ninety five
0: each. That's right. So this would be something for as as we said, a program that wanted to order a lot of them and and help hospitals that they serve.
1: Well we try to make sure that we didn't pigeonhole the signs. So if you had one hospital and you wanted to buy one to four signs. We can do that. If you're a large institution and you wanted 150 to 250 signs, we can support that too.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's great, great initiative. I know you've worked on a lot of different things with uh, helipad or heliport uh, improvements. So this is another good safety program.
1: Well, that's the key. I think the number one reason was public safety. Uh, We wanted to make sure anyone in and around the heliport was aware of the hidden dangers so that they could uh, take appropriate action not be there when the helicopter lands. The other side of the coin is it also helps uh, institutions with liability. Uh, The insurance underwriters that we spoke to thought it was a very good project and recommended that their uh, clients have something similar to this.
0: Is the program for NESPA a fundraiser?
1: Yes. uh, Proceeds uh, of course, go to pay for the sign and the um, time and expenses for our vendor. And then there are some proceeds that go directly to NEMSPA to help support the uh, work
0: NEMSPA does. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's good. I'm glad I caught you because I just, uh, I think what you just announced this yesterday, was it? Or I know an email that I got from you.
1: Uh, uh, well, yeah, we're just now really getting uh, the ball rolling on uh, full-blown advertisement. Uh, we've been working on it since about July of uh, 2009. It first introduced the idea at the Air Medical Conference uh, in October mm-hmm. in California. And really in the last month just did get all the ordering um, software put together online for people to place orders. So we're up and running and ready to uh, start uh, delivering signs.
0: Well, good. Well, I'm glad, uh, glad I caught that and glad I could get you on the podcast to get the, the word out, and best of luck uh, as you move that forward.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very
0: much. Sure. Today I am interviewing Doctors Howard Werman and Kathy Jaynes, the medical director and director of research for the new Center for Medical Transport Research. Dr. Howard Werman is a professor in the College of Medicine at The Ohio State University, as well as the medical director for the MedFlight program. His extensive experience as a board-certified emergency physician has expanded to directing and consulting national and international efforts to improve emergency medical systems. Dr. Werman has published extensively in the area of emergency care and critical care transport, And in 2006, received the Barbara A. Hess Award from the Association of Air Medical Services in recognition of his significant contribution to the enhancement of the emergency medical industry through research and educational excellence. Dr. Werman completed his undergraduate studies at Duke University, medical school at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and his emergency medicine residency at the Ohio State University. He lives in Bexley, Ohio, with his wife and has three grown children. Dr. Kathy James is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado's College of Nursing and brings years of experience in critical care transport, leadership, and flight nursing. Dr. James' doctoral studies focused on health services evaluation and research methods, and her current research is focused on the provision of safe and effective critical care transport for rural underserved populations. She received her bachelor's in nursing from California State University in Fresno, California, her master's in community health nursing and Ph.D. in Nursing in Healthcare Systems Evaluation and Research Methods from The Ohio State University. Dr. Jaynes lives in Denver and has two older children. Welcome, Howie and Kathy, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today.
2: Thanks, Ed. It's great to get a chance to do this with you. Thanks, Ed.
0: Howie, I want to especially thank you because I know you are leaving for Haiti tomorrow, I believe, and you have, I'm sure, a lot of logistics that you're working on. Uh, Where exactly are you going in Haiti, and what will you be doing?
3: Well, I'm actually going to a town in the northeast part of Haiti. It's called Fort Liberté, and actually, uh, how I originally got involved in this is through Kathy, uh, when she was a flight nurse here at Midflight. she actually turned me on to this uh, group of... uh, uh, providers, and, and uh, it's actually a church here that is uh, coordinating this mission. So this will be our my fourth time. The mission's probably been going since 2003, and um, uh, that town, fortunately, is about 90 miles from, you know, Ground Zero, but mm. I'm told there's about a thousand refugees already that they've
0: identified from Port-au-Prince. So uh, are you going to be doing uh, some hands-on medical care? Yeah, it's a lot of lot of primary care uh, and episodic
3: care uh, for the people there.
0: Yeah, I've been following that whole story, you know, from the air medical perspective. But, uh, uh, you know, a number of people have gone down and a number of people in our, you know, air medical community have been down there. So uh, we'll be interested uh, to hear what you have to say when you get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a great opportunity to kind of... Get involved in a whole different culture and a great group of people. So I'm glad Howie's going to get to go.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I have you on to talk about the Center for Medical Transport Research. Uh, So let's talk about that. What was the genesis for the center and who was behind it? I I know Rod Crane had a part in this. So uh, please explain.
2: Well, Howie, Uh, you were in on it from the get go. So why don't you kind of give your take on how we found ourselves here?
3: Sure. Um, basically, I can tell you that it really was Rod's idea. Uh, obviously, you know, we have gone to enough uh, air medical transport conferences, you know, to sort of see the kind of research that's out there and, you know, also hear the safety stories and people, you know, uh, Steve Thomas and others and Brian Bledsoe uh, talking about how, you know, there is a real need for research to justify uh the kind of uh, things that we're doing in the air medical industry and uh I think Rod heard that message loud and clear and one of the things that kind has been his um, focus has been to bring people together you know in in kind of unique ways and Medflight itself is a relatively neutral um uh, uh, consortium and among a group of hospitals here in Columbus and so it was that notion that he thought about, you know, maybe we can get a larger body together and, you know, a multi-institutional group that can begin to, A, figure out what questions need to be asked, and B, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, sort of how we can go about doing it logistically. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, he sh- shared the idea with me, and, uh, you know, I have a little bit of background in that, but... Uh, It really wasn't until uh, he engaged Kathy in some thinking about the the center that it really took off. And I guess I'll let Kathy talk about, you know, where she came in and the discussions that took place and what's happened. Sure.
2: Yeah, it was uh, I had just moved here. I think it was. 2007, if I'm correct. So it was, I'd been here in uh, Denver, Colorado on faculty for just a little less than two years. And I got an email from Rod and Howie saying, you know, we're kind of drafting this job description and take a look at it and see if you can make any suggestions. Um, and, you know, I've always got suggestions. So <laughs> I wrote those out and um, sent it back to them. And it's probably a week or two later that I got an email from Rod saying, well, hey, why don't you come take this job? But I said, I, what I really want to do is um, kind of take this to the next level, I think, you know, other than a researcher on staff of a medical transport um, company to really look at how we could um, put together a center that would be able, because of its um, very nature, to pull together multiple... Um, air medical or critical care transport companies, and really hook that up with the academic research uh, resources of a level one research university. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed like I was in a really good place. I mean, it, it has always um, been significant to me to be here in Denver, Colorado, where you know hospital based. Uh, Air Medical Transport kind of got its start. And, um, in fact, from my office, I can see where the helicopters um, land here at the university. But um, so I kind of proposed that. The logic seemed to be to develop our own 501 3C not-for-profit corporation that would be not attached to any one air medical transport company, um, but be in a position um, that we're neutral and able to um, bring lots of different agencies together. Um, Howie and Rod seemed to think that that logic was a good one. And so we started uh, putting things together to um, incorporate and set things up. And just in the fall of 2009, we did incorporate as a not-for-profit and um, have some projects, great projects underway. Mm
0: -hmm. And I want to talk about those projects. And Kathy, you worked uh, with... um at at MedFlight, uh, right. So that's how the connection, right. Uh, but it, but basically, it's sort of kind of a virtual company right now, correct?
2: Well, it, we actually do have about, um, probably a six by six office space, (laughs) but by and large, um, our thinking was, is that it, we weren't intending for it to be a geographical thing or something that was about central Ohio, but that it was really something that would, um, function at the national and international level. So location didn't seem to be so much an issue. We, you asked, I think if we had other staff or, uh, you know, I, we have started to grow. We have a um, part-time person um, who's our research support coordinator, Pat Jones. Um, Chuck Ansley, who's the, actually the CFO of MedFlight, is currently our chief administrative officer for the research center. Um, And Howie is our medical director. So it's all kind of piece together from um folks we know that were really committed to getting this started. Um so I think it's been a great group to work with as we pull things together.
0: Now Howie, you you're uh part time as medical director, how much time are are you spending with the, the center and Kathy, the same question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been um sort
3: of blessed in the sense that uh MedFlight's been very generous with my time, so it, it, it's I'm 50% at MedFlight, mm-hmm. and essentially among the duties, you know, although technically my job description for the as medical director for the center is completely different, uh, it's all sort of folded into my time there. So I would say, you know, maybe of the 50% of the time I'm spending, five to 10% of the total, my total time sort of involved directly with the stuff uh, that the center is doing.
0: Okay.
2: And uh, the way that we worked it out here is that I have a um, practice contract with the Center for Medical Transport Research, um, and they are buying out 25% of my time um, from my faculty, my full-time faculty position here. Okay. Yeah, so...
0: Well, let's talk about the vision and mission of the center.
2: Well, I'll tell you, we have um, been working with that uh, piece with the board, and um, we just did seat a board last fall um, and are working on our strategic planning. But our mission is really to look at um, the access and quality of, and safety of, air, of critical care transport. And by access and quality and safety, we're looking at the three E's that Anderson and aday define in their um, behavioral model of healthcare utilization. And that's to look at equity, efficiency, and effectiveness. So, you know, if you look back kind of historically on a lot of what air medical transport has been about, it's it's looking at um, what I would describe as clinical best practices Mm -hmm. Um, when when actually. If we really want to have a broad look at how our industry fits into the overall delivery of healthcare in this country and others, um, we want to look at issues of, you know, how equitable are the services delivered to those people who need them. Um, what are the efficiencies of this kind of work? You know, how do we realize economies of scale and, um, you know, use the limited resources in the best way possible? And what really, um, in terms of effectiveness, can bring about positive outcomes for patients and their families? Um, so so we wanted to expand the breadth of what we were doing a bit. Um, for me, The key thing I would really like to see happen and and was probably a really motivating thing for me as we discussed what we might accomplish in the center was this notion of being able to develop um, practice-based research networks um, that would be international in scope so that we could really get critical care transport providers to um, look at that breadth of our practice um, in different payer systems. Um, across geographic boundaries um, and in very different models of critical care transport delivery. So for me, I think that's the vision is to really move this to a notch where we can share data across boundaries, across competitive regions and begin to figure out a little bit about, you know, what really makes this work? Mm-hmm. Why are we value added to anybody's healthcare system?
0: What um, is the percentage uh, that you're looking at, critical care ground versus air? Well,
2: I'll be honest, so far, our piece has focused primarily on air medical transport. Um, our initial project, in fact, actually, the grant predated the start of the center when Howie and um, Rod talked to me about um, being the director of research for the center, Um, I had already received uh, or was in the process of receiving a grant from the then fair um, to come in and analyze the narrative um, sections of the 2005 pilot safety survey. which, you know, by its very nature, had kind of focused on the the air transport piece. And um, so some of these projects have grown off of that. So that actually was our first focus.
0: Okay. And, and as the pilot safety survey, that's still ongoing right now?
2: Um, Actually, I've just completed that analysis, that narrative analysis, Mm -hmm. in uh, in January and was able to pull it into a a concept mapping and factor analysis kind of software that has kind of mapped out the domains of safety as the pilots have seen it and um, as their narratives Responses kind of led us in that direction, so I think it'll be a great foundation for ongoing safety surveys and safety research work in our in our industry.
3: Okay. And the, the nice thing is that's that same concept we're, we're using a, in a project to look at a, a research agenda, national research agenda mm-hmm. for the air medical transport industry. And so those same concept mapping concepts, if you will, uh, are what are being utilized uh, to accomplish that.
2: Yeah. It was such a great way to take, a, you know, the the pilot safety survey was almost kind of done backwards from a research perspective. But I think it came out great because of a particular software and, and analysis process, analytic process that I was able to use to analyze huge amount of, brainstorm data, if you will, and get it categorized and prioritized. So we're currently working on um, another provision from the uh, then fair was a uh, grant to do some concept mapping around what the national research agenda should be and how to prioritize that. So that that's one that's in process right now. And it will, it does include um, people from, ground transport as well. So hopefully we'll be able to take that paper written, um, I think about eight or nine years ago now, and um, maybe get an action plan out of that for our further research as we go down the road.
0: And that was the the, the Delphi project?
2: That's the Delphi project. Yeah, Yeah, basically we um, drafted about 40 people from um, various walks of uh, stakeholders that are invested in critical care transport, from everyone from people who are working as transport nurses and medics, um, people who are working as dispatchers, flight coordinators, Uh, communication specialists to program administrators, as well as um, docs that are working with different transport companies, but also docs and other clinicians who are in the rural setting and are vested in um, how it is that we best fit into the healthcare delivery system. We've also got a couple people from federal agencies who are potential funders or policy makers uh, to pull this together. We really tried to think of folks that have um, really taken a stand on critical care transport and opinions about how it should be delivered to help us form some critical research questions in fact, I think we they wound up during the brainstorming phase um, with one hundred and nineteen um, questions that they thought really should drive our research over the next few years now right now i 've got uh, about 25 people that'll be working with them to put that into uh, sorting and rating and we'll do some of the analysis and should have some domains and um, action plan in the next few months. Is that
0: going to be published then? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Howie, I know you, um, because of your trip to Haiti, you, you have limited time. Is there an area that you wanted to talk about as far as some of the research um, projects that you're working on? Um, well, I think
3: the other one, and I, I'm going to ask Kathy to talk a little bit more, which I think is probably the maybe uh, the biggest bang we've gotten for our buck so far is the uh, digital safety stories, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, which has really had an impact. And the, the folks that have gotten a chance to view them and use them have said that it has had a tremendous uh, impact and just in terms of, Framing any discussion that they've had on uh, air medical safety, Um, so that's a big one. I did. I think it's important, and I know I'm going to forget some of the names. That maybe we mentioned some of the board members for the uh, center, uh, because I think it's uh, they're obviously a very important part of what we do. And so, uh, the chairman is a fellow named Marco Bonta, who is. uh, former um, board member actually at MedFlight and a trauma surgeon and an American College of Surgeon reviewer by uh, trade. Um, the, we have uh, Richard Schrock, who is actually a, a prior hospital administrator who also uh, has been involved in the air medical industry. Um, we have Chuck Hansley, who is actually MedFlight's CFO on the board. Um, Stephen Thomas, who I'm sure you know is uh, a very, very uh, accomplished researcher in air medicine and now chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Oklahoma. Um, And we have Laura McKenzie, who is a, uh, actually, she's an injury prevention researcher at Children's Hospital here in town, Um, but they have a national center for injury prevention. And we're kind of uh, looking to her to take us maybe in some new ways. Uh, that we Yeah, can Lara's
2: got at. some great ideas. So, yeah. And then um, and and I Renee. don't want to forget
3: Renee Holleran, oh. uh, is a name that I really don't have to say much more about. Everybody yeah. <laughs> who's been in the industry knows Renee and her own accomplishments. So uh, I did want to mention those folks
0: before well, we... I'm, I'm glad you did that because I, I had that as a... A question, because I I know the listeners would be interested in who's all behind this. When when did you have your first board meeting?
2: Oh, let's see. It was was the end of September. Yeah, Yeah. 2009. So we really are just getting up and running. But sometimes I stop and think about all the stuff we have going on and... (laughs) It's very encouraging. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're gonna have to up that's, those percentages on both uh, your times, exactly.
2: <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> While Kathy's still alive and you know has some hair left, so <laughs> that'll be good. But uh, how, I, I, I was hoping you'd say something about the EMS project. And
3: yes, the one other good. thing that we talked about, um, we've done locally and we want to extend it nationally is to look at, in using, again, a little bit of the same concepts, uh, you know, the whole Delphi and concept mapping, Uh, we developed an EMS satisfaction survey, a validated survey for the air medical industry. Now, we've done it, it was done regionally here, so we brought providers and EMS providers, uh, referring physicians, um, fire services, the whole gamut from a region of the state here and kind of did the same thing, uh then prioritized and categorized and ultimately came up with a document uh, that we've subsequently used to, uh, you know, um, survey our local EMS here and say what are the things that are important to you about air medicine and how are we doing in that regard. And I think the goal is to take that pilot project And, you know, go national to national, uh, you know, take it to a national level um, so that we could have a, you know, an externally validated, you know, EMS and um, hospital survey instrument that looks at the air medical industry and makes sure that they hold us accountable for the things that they think are important.
0: And, And where's that? Is that survey going out to EMS personnel referring physicians or...?
3: Uh, we've only used it locally here and we've only we've once it was developed, um, it's primarily EMS based and although we did have some physicians on there, they serve dual roles as emergency medicine physicians, but they're also EMS medical directors. So I think that was the kind of so the the target really was EMS at this point and it's only been, you know, used regionally or locally here in central Ohio. But again, those concepts you know, we could use the same uh, process and develop a nationally validated um, survey yeah. instrument. Uh-huh.
2: We, we've kind of got a beta, mo- what I consider a beta model out there right now, and we were able to run some factor analysis on the survey itself and look at the domains that emerged from this. Uh, first the focus group process and then from actually fielding the survey. Um, so we've got a lot of responses back, and that kind of helped us narrow down and and um, make some plans to evaluate. But really what we'll need to do to make it nationally reliable will be to repeat some focus groups in different regions of the country. Um, and get their input and continue with this analysis so that we can kind of fine-tune that and then field it several times so that we know we have a tool that works. So eventually, my my thinking for this in the long run will be that we've developed something m- that's more than, um, you know, a satisfaction tool mm-hmm. because, you know, that can be kind of nebulous. But um, because we were able to use the focus group process, and then do some content and factor analysis work with a, a beta questionnaire, um, I'm hoping that we are going to be able to come up with something that really defines what the domains are of this relationship that we have in the air medical transport industry with pre-hospital care. So, you know, I wanted to see what it was they were thinking and what their ideas were for pushing the edge of the envelope. So it's not just about, um, you know, does our local provider show up on time and do they seem to be clinically competent, but I was really fascinated to hear the kinds of things that EMS folks were mentioning that could be a part of that EMS air medical relationship. Like, um, you know, we should be working on quality improvement together, or we should be working on data collection and research projects together. Um, we should be actually considered as a member of the team with referring and receiving hospitals so that we are getting the appropriate feedback to let us know how well we're using this service you know it was awesome just to hear how invested these people were and um and the breadth of what they thought um this relationship could really be about so i, I it was it was great
0: yeah, this this seems much more than as you said, a satisfaction survey, because I know there's some tools out there. In fact, sure. uh, on the uh, episode two, Bill Gerard, you know, has developed a, I think a very good tool for that kind of immediate feedback. But I think what mm-hmm. you're looking for here is more what is really defining that relationship and what makes that better. Yeah, and and, and, and go and, off on a one point because uh, I've seen this everywhere I've worked, um, and and getting feedback is that quality improvement. Piece, because mm-hmm. it always seems to get stymied, you know. Because remember, in the old days, we would send out letters, and you know, you guys did well, or you know, you know, mm-hmm. let us help you with something. And now, with with HIPAA and everything mm-hmm. else, it doesn't seem like we're able to give them the feedback that they need.
2: Well, and I'm going to let oh, me just say, I'm run, have Howie?
0: to go, so I wanted to
3: uh, well, thank, thank you for taking the time to yep. let us talk about the center. Yeah, well, you know.
0: thank you, uh, Howie, and the best of luck in Haiti. Uh, do uh, yeah, you know, send us an sh- email, and if you you got internet down there, let us know how things are going. we Will do. Okay. Yeah, that'd Take be care. awesome,
2: Howie. Have a great trip. Bye-bye.
0: You know, how how can we get get that quality improvement? information to EMS personnel, because it seems when I have talked in the past to them, it's always that we want feedback. Right. Um, and
2: yeah, yeah. And I've been doing this since, you know, the eighties and, um, that has been a consistent message. Yes, And, And I suppose if you sit back and look at what's happening in our industry, you know, and how, um, you know, how the shift is, occurring from people being in um, programs that are based right at the hospital and the greater number that are becoming freestanding or more of a public service model, Um, there's still the need to know, which is what's at the heart of HIPAA, really. And I've often thought, you know, if you approach things in a quality improvement rather than a quality assessment kind of approach, that you're able to, um, you can kind of spread things out to a more generalized outcomes model rather than a patient by patient call on, hey, they did great, which honestly, I don't know what your experience has been over the years, Ed, but... You know, sometimes that right-of-way feedback is not correct or complete. Um, so that's always an issue. But I've always thought just moving more to a model where you have a, a kind of an agreement in place and a program in place where you're aggregating patient data over a given period of time that has some significance to it, Um to start involving them in in you know their feedback as well, uh, and and trying to look at trends and general issues rather than patient by patient um, dissection of what happened and what mm-hmm. went right or wrong. And, so I think, and, well, I think there's some definitely of that is a important. way to take it into quality improvement. You know,
0: yeah, so some of that is important. Uh, but it's that trending too. And then exactly. how that f- feeds into the education program of your own staff or, exactly. the, or the like uh, I've often EMS thought
2: it would be so cool to be able to meet with a rural hospital that, you know, sends several patients a year or several patients a month into tertiary care or whatever whatever the referral involves and just say, Well, let's take a look overall at the patients that you've been sending in and here's what we know um outcome wise and i think that's better at guiding overall decisions and policy and procedure development anyway mm-hmm. so um anyway i think there's we have a long way to go on things we could accomplish i think
0: and when is that manuscript gonna be done or what's the projection? oh
2: yeah i know <coughs> um, yeah well Let's go back to the Kathy's at 25% of the time. <laughs> These, It's on my list. <laughs> and I'm hoping that that gets out by the end of the summer. Yeah. Because um, really, it's a very cool questionnaire. We got a good return rate on it. And um, so I'd love to see it start getting used in more places and do some more focus groups. So I've got that that manuscript and the manuscript about... Um, what the pilots described as domains of safety and their narrative responses, that was really awesome. So um, both of those manuscripts have got to get done here in the next two to three months.
0: You. Well, I wanted to, we we talked about the Delphi. I, I want to spend some time on the safety stories. But before we get to that, the other area is the critical access hospital Yes. transfer research. Could you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah.
2: And that's, you know, that's very early on. And uh, what I'd like to be doing is really looking at um, that being a practice-based research network project, you know, maybe one of our first, but um, I'd like to have the perspective of what kind of not not dissimilar to what the EMS project's about, to really look at hospitals that have been especially designated as places that serve as rural um, points of care um, who are well-connected to tertiary centers um, so that referral of rural folks can be made appropriately and timely and in a timely manner. Um, So I think Medicare and Medicaid have really focused on this critical access hospital concept as a way to bring equitable and efficient care to folks in rural areas. And a lot of what we do means access for rural folks. So I'd like to have it from the perspective. um, When we look a lot of times at who we transfer and utilization issues, we're typically looking at who we flew, or who we brought by ground, and um, how well that went, and what the outcomes are. But it 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 strikes me that the real issue is what are the needs of the critical access, or even more broadly, the rural hospitals. Um, who doesn't get transferred? Um, what are their outcomes compared mm-hmm. to those who do, and the the various modes that they come in. So. We are just kind of drafting um, that project right now. We're hoping that we're able to pull some federal funding together for that because I'd really like to um, be able to do the Practice-Based Research Network piece, but I also think that we could pull a tremendous amount of data out of some federal data sets that are available. I've done a little bit of work. Uh, well, not just a little bit. Um, I've done. A fair amount of work with um, some data sets like the Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey, Medicare Claims Data, Medicaid Claims Data. Um, And Lara McKenzie and I, Dr. McKenzie from Children's Hospital, Nationwide Children's in Columbus, have talked about some of the pediatric data sets that would be available as well and start looking at um, rural um, critically ill and injured to see what sort of um, transfer patterns and non-transfer patterns currently exist. And um, begin to connect that to some of the outcomes. Um, I think that'll give us a bigger answer to the question of of how we fit into the healthcare system. So mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah we'll just Starting with that.
0: Maybe one of your points, because um, I've always thought about too, you know, because air especially air medical there's a lot of criticism of, you know, over triage or patients that shouldn't have flown. But then right. what the other set of data we have is what about the ones that should have been, you know? Right. And you know, well, how do you get that? You
2: even um, go back to the IOM um, mm-hmm. report, and I'm boy, I'm not going to give you that quote, uh, that uh, reference uh, in my head right now, but basically IOM taking a look at um, quality of health care and access, um, saying that of overuse, underuse, and misuse um their analysis was that underuse of um healthcare was one of our more significant problems yeah. in this country yeah um you know with the realization that all three of those kind of live in some sort of tenuous balance right. um but you know, we've had discussions since at least I've been in the industry about um, utilization and appropriateness of transport. And I, I don't know that we really have evidence of numbers. Boy, I wish Stephen Thomas was on this conversation because, mm-hmm. he's boy, he's got these right on the tip of his tongue. But just looking at issues of um, um, you know, what is acceptable over triage so that we don't under triage and cause such a loss? Uh, our last board meeting was just so awesome because um, Mark Obanta, who's in trauma, and Stephen, who's been working with triage issues in the industry and and Howie that's been doing this for, 25 years, just listening to these three docs, with somewhat different of a, pers- a different um, perspectives, talking about all the work that there is to be done in this area of triage and um, along not just lines of trauma, but other. Really, what are other time-dependent and tertiary care-dependent things that we're identifying like stroke and heart attack and, you know, what are the guidelines for this? Um, My dissertation was actually using the Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey and looking at cardiac transfers um, who got transferred, who didn't? And you know back in uh, you know the late 90s when I started that work, I was stunned to open up like the American College of Cardiology um, guidelines for acute um, cardiac syndrome and, and and what should be done. And in this huge manual, 200 pages long, basically there's there's two paragraphs in their guidelines that talk about transfer because most of these national guidelines are written, as though every patient in the country were being treated in full service cardiac, full service stroke, full service. Well, that's just not reality, you know, which really got me thinking about the whole point of us being able to address issues of equity, um, which, you know, looks at underserved populations. And really, I think, I think we provide a a critical link for folks who are in underserved or remotely served areas of the country so anyway you got me started on yeah one no, my- that, hey, no sorry
0: <laughs> no I, well i think it's an important question it's and it's that and you know the other thing you know we've been debating this whole national health reform but you know access really for folks that are yeah. underinsured or have no insurance you know what, yeah. what's the the differences but
2: yeah that's
0: the subject of another podcast yeah <laughs>
2: exactly that don't have specialty care in their yes. town you know right. and i don't know and I, I i i'm fully aware you know i've sat in the um back seat of the helicopter and taken care of you know, I don't even know how many patients I've flown in my years as a flight nurse, but I'm fully aware that there are people I've flown in my own career that I've thought, wow, why, why are we flying this person in? And, um, you know, I think it's not as straightforward about the the clinical picture that we're looking at right this minute, but a lot of different things fold together. And I think we got to dig a little bit deeper about you know, how we figure out um, the best way for us to contribute, not just to be an expense in the healthcare industry. Right. So.
0: Well, let's talk about, I'm just fascinated, uh, because on your website, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but um, all these safety stories. uh, Oh, yeah. Talk about those. That is
2: one of my favorite topics. So I, I cannot believe what's happened here. And I'll tell you, really how that got started was in analyzing this pilot safety survey and uh the manuscript that i finally finished and and sent in for publication will mention this one statement that was made uh you know i don't know if you know the background of the pilot safety survey and and um the folks who fielded it have published a couple of articles in our air medical journal but um there was a tremendous response to that 2005 surveys. There were around 800 EMS pilots who sent the survey back and the piece that was so interesting was that about 300 and oh, I'm trying to remember, it's like 370 some odd of them took the time to respond to three narrative questions in that survey. So there are pages of um, statements and paragraphs and some rants and some, <laughs> you know, some incredibly articulate comments mm. about how they saw safety shaping up in the industry and what their thoughts about it were. But there's one pilot and you know, it's all anonymous. I have no clue who sent it, who said it, but um, one of the statements that really grabbed my attention in that survey was um, we can't create a, sa- a culture of safety in our industry because we don't know what it looks like. And that just, that really stuck with me because, you know, as, as somebody who worked as a flight nurse for 18 years, 17 years, I thought, well, I know what it looks like. Um, you know, I could tell you a story about, I could tell a hundred stories about different things that happened and not, not stories that are about, oh my God, we almost, but stories about, Woody never getting um, a medic that I flew with, we always talked about him, man, he never runs. He always is thinking he's always careful or, you know, that's it. That's part of what safety looks like. Or this pilot had the rule that we would always do this before we would, you know, that's what safety looks like is all these little things that we do every day so that, you know, Terrible things don't happen all the time, yeah. and so I thought, you know, all of us do have a story about what safety looks like. So, how do we start to gather these stories in a way that's meaningful?
0: Well, we'll, we'll talk about some of them, yeah. Because there's, I know Jonathan. Yeah, I, Jonathan I had him on a, uh, two podcasts ago, Jonathan yeah. Godfrey and The Awakening. I think it's yeah. called and.
2: I, you know, and I, and I found out about Jonathan, um, a little more about him as he wrote some, uh, I read a couple of things that he published in, um, the journal as well as our news and views. And, and I, I thought, oh my gosh, I got to get Jonathan to come tell a story. And, um, Oh, we, you know, we circulated, um, flyers to, you know, we bought the mailing list from Ames and sent it out to everybody. And we, we dragged people into the first (laughs) workshop that we, you know, we just wanted them to understand what the workshop's about and how the storytelling happens because it's a very, um, unique model for putting these kinds of things together, um, And really how I I wound up making a safety story um, at a workshop right here at the University of Colorado Denver in our College of Nursing. Um, We were trying out um, a process of digital storytelling that has been adapted or promoted by two different organizations on the international level that I want to mention. Um, the Center for Digital Storytelling, in, uh, which has its base in Berkeley, California, um, and Joe Lambert, their director, kind of, kind of wrote the book, if you will, on digital storytelling and the elements of it. Um, and the local guy here from CDS is Daniel Weinshanker. So I worked with Daniel and a woman from um, Patient Voices and Um, an organization in the UK that is working on gathering digital stories from patients and care providers to describe healthcare Mm. um, and are doing just an incredible job. Well, I I wound up being asked after I made that first story that was used for teaching about um, how digital storytelling can change people's thinking and, and capture the essence of people's experiences um, the Patient Voices and the Center for Digital Storytelling have pulled together a series of conferences called Humanizing Healthcare. Um, and out of that workshop, um, Pip and I, uh, the gal from Patient Voices, decided we just had a lot of thinking in common. And we would kind of, um, she would love to work with me on these safety stories projects. So We've um, been able to present our ideas um, in some manuscripts that are out for publication right now, and we'll be presenting at some international conferences as well. Um, So, Pip and Joe and the CDS folks have been able to kind of help us craft a workshop that's more than just um, sitting down and telling what you recall, but because of the technical and um, kind of the coaching expertise that they bring to the workshop are able to help folks really distill the essence of emotion and, and um, thinking and what they want people to learn from critical events um, that reflected safety issues in their own careers. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty extraordinary, I think what's coming around with that.
0: And. Um... Do you want to talk about any of the specific stories? And then are, is this going to be expanded then too? Are there going yes. to be more?
2: Um, we've actually just um, put in a couple of applications in this last um, Medivac Foundation cycle um, and to some folks who have an interest as um, industry partners to fund additional workshops. So the plan is to continue at the AMTC conference with some annual um workshops um, held just before the AMTC conference, as well as to do some regional conferences so that we can help keep um, expenses down for folks who want to participate in the opportunity to um, share their stories. But Mm -hmm. what I envision is, um, and we've been working on the website to accommodate this uh, broad uh, uh, bandwidth that we're going to need for this. Mm Um, but I think we're set to go to start developing a, a full library as well as educational materials that people can use, um, to teach with the stories in their, um, in their transport companies. So that's the goal with it. And I, I, I just am hearing that there's an incredible need. Janie Ford, I don't know if you know Janie, she's, um, a flight nurse out. Um, It works in association with the University of Utah. And she um, does a lot of uh, teaching nationally on safety programs and working with groups who are developing safety programs. And uh, she recently did a, um, um, a class that she went to Um, And and I'll let Janie say at some point where that was and how that all evolved. But really what she wrote back after she used her story, which is about um, uh, IMC that she ran into in the helicopter and how that all evolved and the communication in the cockpit and just how she survived that. Um, incident. She used that story and a couple other of the stories that are already in the library to work with this large air medical transport organization. And Mm. she was stunned, um, by the kinds of conversation that it started in the group. And, um, She came away from that workshop, that safety workshop with them, and she sent Pip and I a message, an email right away, and she said, oh my gosh, I think I'm your biggest fan. Um, She said, that just opened up conversation and thinking that I've just never seen occur in these kinds of workshops, and just hit the nail on the head with the kinds of issues people are up against. And she said, "I, I really believe that this is the new face of safety education. Um, in our industry. So, and and honestly, I have to say, I use it with my nursing students that I teach here at the university. And, you know, a lot of them will say, wow, Kath, I, I don't think I'll probably ever be flying in a helicopter. But they get the themes that are yes. coming out of it. And, and they get the personal... Um, piece that and how this affects us as practitioners and clinicians. Um, they get that. So I think the stories are going to be a really powerful tool for yeah. us to use.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I interviewed Jonathan and had him tell the story about the crash. Then uh, yeah. we went into Vision Zero too but uh, janie's is called helpless um it's yes. on there so
2: yeah it's a great story and yeah. you know different themes are coming up i mean howard ragsdale told a story mm-hmm. about you know here he is you know uh uh provider, administrator, basically, you know, thinking that, hey, we knew what we knew. We knew we were good at what we do. And, um, I think the title of his story is what we didn't know. Um, and, oh my gosh, that's a fabulous story. And, um, and, and, um, Steve Murray from, um, Net tells a great story about, um, night vision goggles and what happened, um, on a flight pre-dawn hours, you know, in the hills of West Virginia, right off the river, um, they lose their engines and, um, it's pitch dark and be and the only reason that they're not having to ditch in the river with a patient on board is that the night vision goggles enabled Steve at the very last second to say, Oh my God, there's a cornfield nine o'clock. And the pilot was able to maneuver the aircraft and skid to a bumpy rough landing, but on ground that was reasonably flat. Yeah. And, and so they were able to, um, you know, they were able to, to, survive the crash. So just great stories that I think really reflect a complexity of what we have going on in our industry that affects safety. And it's from a personal experience and, and lessons learned approach, you know, so it's, it's real. It's not just something somebody's making up to convince somebody else that safety is important. They're sharing what it was like to be in the middle of some situations. So. Yeah.
0: And, 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 so, people could, I, I think, in talking to Jonathan too, because, you know, we keep adding technology and technology, and that's not always the only thing. I mean, no, it's great to have, exactly. you know, night vision goggles and and uh, other improvements in technology, exactly. but it's that personal attention to exactly. safety. Exactly. I um, mean,
2: I think Jonathan, both Jonathan's story and um, Steve's story, um, Well, and really in the story that I told too, I think what it boiled down to was, thank God we had practiced and had drilled into us how it is we would work together um, or how it is we would keep our um, wits about us to survive something that seemed unsurvivable. Um, you know, what are those key words that go around or the brace, brace, brace that Steve talks about, or, um, Jonathan has a phrase in his story as well, that basically gave him the motivation to say, okay, if I can stay calm and focused in this survey, in, in this situation, I can survive this and, and, that's exactly what did happen. So right. it, it wasn't about the hardware, you know. It was about that personal learning that had taken place. So I just love what's happening with the stories. I, Boy, I just feel like, wow, I think we've just really found something that's going to be so helpful. Well, that's so.
0: what, because uh, Rod had sent out an email and I saw that. I had it in my yeah. You know, big read file yeah. then I went and started looking at those in the stores like, Oh my gosh, this is wonderful. So
2: It is wonderful. So I just feel really um I mean, really we sit sit in a room sat in a room in, in San Jose in October and made those as a pre conference yes. workshop. Yeah. And um boy, at the end of that two and a half days we were whooped <laughs> and and people I think felt um In some ways, exhausted and really drained emotionally from you know what we worked through together, but I know that in addition to creating this bank of stories that are going to be great to teach with, I know that everybody um, that was in that room felt like something had happened that was really healing for them. Mike Cooper tells a story about um, international travel on fixed wing, um, and some of the. The dangers that are there for us, and um, and I, I don't think he'd mind sharing that. Really, at first he was asked not to talk about the story because it involved a lot of agencies um, that felt it was politically pretty sensitive to bring up the issues that had occurred, and really wanted to control the information. Which you know, makes a lot of sense in a business perspective. But I think um, as we really evolve the culture of our industry, I think we're going to, find ourselves as, as hospitals and general healthcare are right now at a point where we're going to have to say, you know what, we're going to have to be brave enough to share these stories and, and share what it is we're learning with each other. Otherwise we're not going to benefit from it either. It, and it
0: uh, wasn't, uh, uh, Megan Hamilton and Teresa Pearson and Krista Hagen, uh, Part of the some of the filming of that, they're the ones that you know started with uh, Jonathan, the Survivors Network.
2: Um, they might be. They were not in the digital storytelling um, workshop, okay. so I haven't gotten to know them, and I. Uh, we actually, the digital storytelling process evolves a bit differently. And you've probably, now that you've gotten to take a look at them, there is slightly a difference between something that's, you know, like a documentary or a narrative mm-hmm. um, in that the digital storytelling um is very much from the perspective of the storyteller and they elect what it is from the story that for them is personally significant. And they themselves um, choose the visual images as well as the audio, um, as well as the script of the story and what it is they wanna share. About it. So it it winds up being a a bit of a different process with a a little bit different focus in mind. Um, Pip Hardy and I talk a lot about. how it's just a unique opportunity to capture a very distilled um, essence of you, if you will, of the story itself, in a way that um, can be shared over and over again, but still convey the same emotion um, as well as enough of the lesson that the learner or the viewer can incorporate that into their own thinking. Right. So it's a little bit different goal than, than the, you know, let's tell the whole story, you know, everything that happened and what were all the perspectives and what were the facts and which is a critical piece, but um, the story winds up being something with a little bit different flavor to it. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I certainly uh, will have the the link, as I said, and people should really take the time and listen to those. Those are, those are just great. And I'm, Glad you have those up there and you're continuing that work. we um,
2: definitely going to keep at that.
0: Well, Kathy, I know we could uh, keep talking for hours, but uh, is there anything else that you'd like to... Uh, say about the center?
2: No, I'm just, it's just been great fun to be Mm -hmm. involved with it and just think about the possibilities. And I know that there's a whole community of folks that are really committed to us developing the evidence that we need to really get our practice right. And um, so gosh, what, what a great kind of work to be involved in with people. Um, So I'm excited to see where we go in the future and what great ideas are out there for us to work together on this. So I'd love to hear from a boatload of people that say, hey, I've got, Kath, I got another idea and let's make it happen and move, move this whole piece forward.
0: Well, it's, it's been great having you on the show and um, having Howie too, because I can, I can sense the passion um that you have for this and yeah that's uh i wish you the continued success and we'll have to check in again um cool. as, you, as you move things forward
2: okay i that would be great ed and thanks for taking the time to talk with us about it thank you you bet
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and the Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks, as always, to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of this podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers, and also the family, friends, and colleagues of the Southwest Medebec transport team lost on February 5th. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.